Welcome to Trunk Church. Come drink the blood of God with us. Bless you for being an angel Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me Cosima B. Concordia. And my name is Aurora Laborn. <sighs> okay, how are you today? I'm very well. <laughs> how, how are you? Good. I just rewatched Mad God. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a hypnotic, it's a hypnotic movie. <laughs> it's beautiful. I was really lucky I was able to see it in theaters. This amazing theater in Chicago, it's called The Music Box. And it's this old, I think it's an old opera house. And it, it's just this huge space. And very few people were there. It was mostly empty, which is criminal <laughs> that not very many people were, went out to go see it, or at least the time that I saw it. It was just, it was amazing. I haven't been so visually stimulated. I, I, at least I can't remember the last time that I was so visually stimulated by any kind of media or kind of art. Yeah, yeah. It was, I think it was playing at the Hollywood here in Portland, and um, I failed to to go see it during that time which was very sad but yeah it's so it's such a visual film you know we were talking about before we hit record that it will be an interesting challenge to talk about this film because the plot is so like devoid of concreteness in the way that a lot of other movies are and um yeah and so we're gonna do our best with that (laughs) (laughs) The, I forget the relationship between the signified and the signifier. So it's all, <laughs> all signifieds without signifiers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, it, it's like the entire thing really feels like this ineffable myth of like violence and like, and it truly, you know, we've been talking about eroticism. It is so full of fluids, like shit and, and like blood and, and pus. And mucus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it really does feel like it transcends in this like utter profanity into like this really sacred place. It does feel like a sacred experience watching the film. And it's so it's it it really feels like being enraptured. Um and there's so much to take in that um i'm sure every time i rewatch it there there will be um new things that i'll get because there's there's details everywhere that have no relevance to the overall plot just it's just filled uh, brimming with detail because <laughs> there almost isn't a, a plot because it's so non-narrative based i'm almost sad that there were there was any w- spoken words any kind of dialogue beyond just the quote the Bible quote, because that makes it so that there's so many different stories that he can tell without limiting limiting it to a single kind of spoken word, spoken language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely true. Yeah, and it starts with that Leviticus quote um, right after we see. Do do you know the symbolism for the spiral tower at the very beginning with the black smoke? Tower of Babel. I assumed. Is it the Tower of Babel? Okay. So then it's like the, it's the fall of like language of communication. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I either assumed that it was the Tower of Babel. And I also thought a, a little bit about the fortress that happens after the, the tower. If that is the 
fortress that is Limbo and Dante's Inferno, but I I was a little bit confused about that. It just it didn't... I, I want to draw comparisons between each of the levels because the little character who, as you mentioned off mic, is titled the assassin in the script, go, goes through all these different levels. Um, and I like was really obsessed with trying to count them and try to map on the symbolism. But I got Tower of Babel feelings. Yeah, that completely like reads for me because it is the first symbol we see before the plane of the Leviticus scroll and then everything that comes after that. So the main like plot as far as there is a plot is we have an assassin, which is its name or he's whatever named that in the script, who is descending in this little pod down into an abyss that's that very much feels like Dante's Inferno, like very like many layers. And throughout the film, we have two different assassins. And there's the understanding that we learn that there is actually so many assassins, just countless assassins that are sent down again and again and again, and kind of this endless quest to destroy hell to like deliver a bomb and destroy everything that's down there and then just like failing again and again and again. And this is all overseen by someone who is titled in the film as the last man. And so who is played by an actual human man instead of um, being entirely in practical effects. And he has these like crazy, like long acrylics, like almost campy. And uh, yeah, that's the base for how we set out. Okay, this is something I don't know very much about. So I almost missed this entirely. It was a friend of mine who I conned into watching. <laughs> um, oh my goodness, the... Um, now I'm forgetting the organ movie. <sighs> Pig? The, 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 no, no, the organ. The oh, organs. oh, um... Uh, Crimes of the Future. Yes, I, I I sort of conned him into watching Crimes of the Future with me, and I felt so guilty um, sort of halfway through the film because I was like, man, this might be a little bit too weird. But he's um, he's one of my oldest friends. He was, like, into it. So he, um, uh, he like, shot me a text. He's like, Mad God's playing. Like, let's see it um, this afternoon. And I went in not knowing anything about it or anything about um, Phil Tippett at all. So it was... Yeah. I didn't know a whole lot about him either before I heard that the film was happening. And I I think I only heard that it was happening like a little bit before it came out. But yeah, so Phil Tippett has been a major practical effects master, basically, in Hollywood for a really long time. So he's worked on a whole variety of different films like... Um, like Robocop and he's like worked on like Jurassic Park and so just a whole bunch of other things and Mad God is kind of his personal passion project that he has worked on and off on for I guess 30 years so means he's you know he started in like early 1990s the vast majority of the film is entirely in practical effects so it's like it's truly a visual marvel. Like everything is packed with detail and significance. Like you can tell that every single little frame, um, like it's it, 
it's less than an hour and a half long, is just brimming with intention. And also just like the kind of like uncanny valley that uh, that I think practical effects can manage. Like there was this uh, Mark Twain movie that I used to, that I had on VHS when I was a kid. And it had this one really horrifying scene that was like in claymation where they talk about the Old Testament and and so like have a kind of reenactment of the Bible where it's like the creation of people and there are these little like clay people and then they're crushed. And I remember it just being so disturbing <laughs> and like fucked up when I was a little kid watching that. And then this feels like that taken to its farthest reaches. So so really taking the the fullness and grandeur of creation and this just intense passion and then like making this piece of art and it's it's really kind of a mind mind-boggling achievement <laughs> i felt so connected and sympathetic towards the little assassins that was something that i was not expecting again i had no idea what to expect <laughs> i had no idea what i was going to go watch but like in the first couple of minutes there's this shot of the little assassin's face and their mask and you, you don't actually see what they look like they're all in uniform but just something about the way that they cocked their head with their little goggles i was just they were so endeared to me like they were in danger navigating this precarious situation and that was the first moment where i leaned forward because this whole my experience watching this film was just how far did i lean out of my my seat just in total um, in rapture. I mean, it was definitely one of those films where I was like grinning and in awe for for a huge amount of the time, especially the first time through. And the first time through, I also cried twice. Um, oh wow! And and because like m- moments of it are deeply moving, and and there's amongst like all of this horror, there's these these moments of just like intense connection that are just so fucking moving. Oh, oh! Now I'm now I'm thinking of of them. Yeah. Oh, there's so much to talk about. How are we gonna How are we gonna walk through this? <laughs> there are so many elements. It's like all of the elements of horror from kind of human reality all exist within this universe of the abyss. So there's there's like one level where it's these like giants who are prisoners being uh, electrocuted to death forever on electric chairs and they're just shitting themselves constantly, which is like coming down in this like waterfall. So like as the assassin descends like beyond it, it, you know, it looks like almost this like natural backdrop. And then it like falls down into this horrific baby type creature that has its mouth up like a baby bird all of like the shit is like funneled down into it and then also like in that same area he like very briefly like looks in and sees this monkey that is um there's a lot of monkeys but uh but there's a lot of birds a lot of birds yeah this monkey is chained down to this table and it and is like crying out and it just like looks at the assassin kind of desperately like pleading for it to get out and there's these like kind of unknown creatures shaking and like shuddering in their cages and then the door slams shut as the monkey screams and it's so 
deeply disturbing and um it very much feels like an analogy there for like animal testing like animal cruelty there's also one of the few explicitly female coded characters is chained up in a cage in that same room oh yeah the doll Mm -hmm. and again just the way that the assassin moves how much expression just through the subtle like tilting and cocking of the head was remarkable because that's when the monkey or the primate is like shrieking out and the little doll like sort of tilts her head too and is pleading in both of their eyes and then as you said this door slams shut the assassin continues in that moment too i thought that something was watching them that was the yeah yeah no absolutely um eeriness of that that was like waiting for the experimenter to come back and then there's the descending into kind of the the horror of almost like of industrialism you know it's like the like just constant mechanical horrors and there's these constant uh, like almost representative of workers but Mm. these like created by a bunch of science stuff and like maybe ash and and like in these molds into human molds and then immediately forced into these assembly lines to fall into pits of fire or to do all of these useless tasks, which inevitably they just die at random, completely unflinchingly. (laughs) And I think the thing that is particularly or really makes that sink in is after you see all of these faceless worker ash people being killed in all these horrifying ways there's this one that has this encounter with the assassin as the assassin is you know trying to proceed through the city and go further down and you can tell there's like a moment of pleading where where like even without the face it manages this just extreme expressiveness of just desire to be free to be out of wherever they are And the assassin like has this moment where you can tell that he's like about to help him. But then one of these creatures that's like kind of a a mass of breasts and sores and shit (laughs) um, comes and they're the ones that discipline the ash people decides to just absolutely murder and like stomp on the worker to death. And it's just deeply (laughs) moving and sad. The gestures, the way that the little character and the character almost looks like it's made out of wisping material how delicate those little working characters are and how i feel like they're not only sort of mindlessly working on an assembly line but they're a little bit cruel to each other it's not only that they keep falling into like into pits or keep accidentally getting crushed it's that sometimes one of them will just do that to another and so that's what made the moment of reaching out so so beautiful is just seeing how delicate and utterly alone this little figure was surrounded by masses of unthinking unmoved others and i think this is a theme that's going to come back i think like with more poignancy later in the film there's these screens that like drop down and then everyone stops what they're doing the moment it comes down it's this like kind of grotesque mouth moving but with these baby nonsense gabbling sounds (laughs) and everyone listens with rapture and it's the thing that decides the fate of these workers this imaginary child this imaginary baby and and i think that that's like kind of the first uh real indication of i think a theme that really goes throughout the whole film 
where through a worship of the imaginary child, like Lee Edelman's child with a capital C that doesn't actually exist, it's this worship of a true idol at the sacrifice of actually lived lives and actually lived children. Yeah, totally. This is also the moment, again, (laughs) to try to cobble together the connections to the Inferno, it's the moment where it overlaps for me, the clearest, because in the fourth circle of hell, the miserly push heavy weights together and are constantly crushed over and over and over again. So the critique of capital or critique of selfishness, and so then they're stuck somewhere where they can't make connections. This is going all the way back to the beginning, but there's lots of monkeys, and I, I don't know what that means, but there's also a lot of birds, and there's this return of these dead birds in a little cage, like these dead doves or this dead dove. And birds in Catholicism, they symbolize God, the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So it's interesting to me that it begins not only with the fall of Babel, so the end of communication, but then also the death of God. So descending into the abyss without God. God is dead in the beginning. I thought that was important. I know what you thought of all the birds. So many birds. <laughs> so many birds. When the initial assassin lands in the first fallen city, like as he's walking along, there's these like little tiny people, like I think played by real humans who are uh, like gnomes. Mm-hmm. They look like gnomes. And they're just fighting over like a rabbit statue or something. I thought they were fighting over a Santa Claus. <laughs> Oh, uh, or a Santa Claus? Yeah, what's well, like they have like a, a like a duck or a rabbit statue, and then like yeah, like have a Santa Claus, and then he just like steps on them because he doesn't notice them, and so again, it's like this constant theme throughout of just kind of the violence of navigating a world with other living beings in it, <laughs> that like the assassin is not he's not going out of his way to do harm, but he just without thinking about this small conflict of these like little creatures he just completely snuffs them out even as he's descending into that to try to fight them and to um try to survive Mm -hmm. you almost get the feeling that it's part of the assassin's mission to not interfere but despite that it's impossible for them not to so even when they like allow the door to close on the monkey and the doll that are locked up or there's at the same time that they're in that fallen city they pass by this scene where there's something hunting something and then the hunted or the hunter becomes the hunted there's this sort of cycle that's happening and the assassin sort of watches from a distance and just keeps going so it's almost like they're again not supposed to leave a trace and yet they still can't help but crush those those little characters or can't help but witness and then be part of the violence that's happening. Because I wonder if they could have intervened in that character when that tries to reach out and is destroyed then by the guard. There's always a moment of pause. Everyone is like morally implicated in the movie. Mm-hmm. And there's all of this horror, but then there's like, there's just constant complication of this infinite horror. And I mean... When we talk about Bataille talking about wanting to confront this like horror without limit, Mad God is definitely taking the narrative or the kind of like visual form that can be contained within, you know, a movie (laughs) pretty much as far as it can go. It is 
truly presenting horror without limit. And that is this truly deeply moving and self-shattering experience. Mm-hmm. The futility of it all. The fact that it's just bound to keep happening over and over and over and over again. And the fact that the characters in every instant where there could be a connection or where they could meaningfully be in a world with others, they always step back in line. That's something that I noticed. They were so alone. In a film that there was so much visually happening and so many layers and so many different characters and types of characters, they're so little actual interactions between them, at least intentional ones, like utterly no communication. Yeah. So it begins with the fall of the Tower of Babel, the end of communication. And if there were interactions, it was mostly violence, you know. I personally love futility and futile things. I think the decision to continue to do something even though you know it's not going to work. Yeah. I feel like the assassin is witnessing all of this senseless, repetitive brutality as they're descending deeper and deeper and deeper. And you get this feeling that they know that they're not going back. There's no going back. So beyond their little pod, them leaving that pod, they're constantly taking out this map and referring to it. And the map just keeps uh, disintegrating. They have less and less direction, (laughs) almost less and less intention to where they're going, even though they very clearly have a mission. And there hits this point where you know that they, I think, are also hopeless, but they're still doing it. They still continue on. And I thought it was beautiful. Yeah. So the first assassin of the film, the final thing he comes upon is these just giant heaping stacks of suitcases. And then he takes out his own suitcase that he's had throughout the entire film. And it's revealed to be a bomb because he has the intent to blow it up. And then just like all of the implied assassins before him, before the bomb actually goes off, this horrific monster comes up and grabs him and drags him away. And he like, you know, tries to hold on, but is is pulled away. And then the bomb fails to go off. Time in this little world, it's nonlinear. It doesn't make sense because even the narrative is sort of flipped. We see the first assassin who is actually the second assassin perhaps. Um, And also, it wasn't that they didn't set the timer, it's that the the timer sort of stops and gets caught. I noticed that there was, like, time didn't operate the way that it was supposed to. I don't know what you made of that. I really do think that you're right that the entire time narrative of the the film is, is flipped, because directly after the first assassin is like dragged away by this monster there's this deeply horrific scene where in this almost shadow theater you see this body or this person being operated under and having these two monsters and this doctor rip random things off of the body while the audience like claps and cheers (laughs) it's the spectacle and then you see the zoom in of this building where there's so many rooms filled with all of these like skinless or like completely bandaged up figures. And you think it's the first assassin, you know, with this like bloodshot eye and looking around the room. And again, like time is really like morphine is not running the way that you would expect it to move. And then the doctor cuts him open and rips open his ribs. Mm-hmm. And, and Yeah. Do you want to talk about that more? Yeah. 
Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm so excited about this. <laughs> so this was the part in the movie where I was already, like, most of the way out of my seat. But I, like, basically almost fell out of my chair and, like, my mouth just, like, was <laughs> open. <laughs> the viscerality of that. And that's how you actually open up a body when you're deconstructing it to the point of just taking. So this is how they retrieve organs from brain-dead patients. So they just burn through and just crack open the rib cage and just like hear that crack in the film and I just got so excited uh, and so you see these doctor characters just reaching in with their gloved hands and just pulling objects so it there's these embodied things things that look like like organs or like of course lots of blood but as they're pulling there's all this like jewels um, and then precious objects but the order of the precious objects, so it's jewels and money and then um, and then books. They finally get to a rib cage, and then there's this insect-looking fetus-like thing. In the script, they call it, even though when you're watching the film, you definitely wouldn't assume this, um, it's called a precious child. So, precious so, child. so when it's pulled out, it says... The surgeon hands the nurse a precious child, and it really is this like very inhuman-looking, strange, almost like fish-like thing. But it has the cries of a of a baby. There are all these sea things, sea creatures that come out of the body too. Just the 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 scope of everything that is pulled out of the corpse is remarkable, and there's almost a hierarchy of meaning. So Mm -hmm. precious jewels like books and knowledge and then this life or this promise of new life that comes with all these sea creatures. I mean, that's a a Jesus thing. Jesus breaking up the fish. (laughs) And then for like that point in the film, the nurse walks away with the baby. We don't know what is going to happen to the precious child. And the surgeon drills into the assassin's head and puts a camera into his head and then there's this staticky TV, and then we see what's in the TV, assumedly, and then this new narrative starts, and it's a different assassin. Pulled from a army of these figures, and something that I couldn't quite figure out is who is versus whom. So there are no clear camps or groups beyond the assassins and this super complicated world but it was unclear to me the extent to which the worlds that the assassins were traversing are interconnected beyond just being beyond there just being like thresholds between the spaces so if there was actually some civilization that encompassed all of that space or if it was these little micro spaces if that makes sense (laughs) It definitely um, confused me, too. I think that if we take the timeline seriously, <laughs> well, let's let's talk about the timeline, I guess. So it, it's like on the first reading, the second assassin comes down and is in this different kind of landscape. Uh, there's like crosses with skulls. There's this war happening. There's screaming people with skulls, tanks shooting at each other and blowing each other up. And then the last we see of that assassin is him driving down on this like staircase, like into the abyss. 
And the first time I watched that, I definitely had a small sense of hope because you don't see that assassin again. And I was like, oh, yeah, maybe there is like some potentiality there. Um, But then I realized on the second rewatching that when it then switches back to the surgeon's room, you're supposed to take that the second assassin is actually the assassin that was operated on in the room. So so that is the assassin, which was, um, you know, the first assassin was taken and, and killed horrifically by the monster. And then the second assassin, whatever waited at the bottom of the abyss, was actually um, being captured and, and operated on by this horrific monster doctor. The fate of the precious child is also very interesting because you have the nurse character and she then goes and meets with this figure in a plague mask. They call it the creature in the script. Where did you get the script? I'm so jealous. <laughs> oh, I just I just went on. I just Googled. I don't know. Just Googled. I'm, like, I'm trying to Google, but I also don't want to mess up the internet connection. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my god. Well, I know uh, what I'm going to be reading later. <laughs> and then I'm going to be kicking myself for not having access to it before. But it's almost like she regrets. Because there's that, that moment of, like, there's this connection with the precious child. And she hands over the precious child to the creature. And she crawls back into this stall and sort of curls up alone. And she's just so lonely. You can tell that through her place in this hell... She is given this like very meager place where she's allowed to sleep, you know, where she isn't killed by these horrific creatures. But like at what cost? Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's complicit. She's fully complicit in this whole violent structure. The question of being complicit in a structure that is violent and beyond you, paired with those the images of the piled up suitcases reminded me of a lot of the visuals that we have um, from from the Holocaust. So the piles and piles of, of suitcases in, in concentration camps or of everyday objects like glasses, because you see those throughout the film. So that symbolism of violence or the symbolism of the nurse of someone whose job it is to tend to others whose job then becomes perverted and or i shouldn't say perverted because we use that word in other contexts (laughs) um but it becomes so twisted that then she's not an agent of care or she isn't caring for others she's the one that is taking away the possibility for care to even take place that to me was was important or was one of the the many layers of meaning we can take away from this. So the place where the creature is taking the baby, like at first there again is almost this like potential uh, sense of hope because it's like, okay, there is this small child and it seems that they're like, actually there is some amount of care. There's like a tenderness that the nurse like gives to the baby. And then, the creature, while it's definitely not tender and it like kind of holds it with its hands down, it takes it gently. And in a narrative that is so filled with constant violence, there seems to be like a glimmer there and you're like, okay, well, what is the child for? Like, is the child going to become the next child on the television? And so then we see the alchemist and the alchemist is this character with like these kind of 
like a lot of um, this small and bulbous growths and he has all of these specimens everywhere, mm-hmm. most of them living, some of them dead. And <laughs> um, and he seems to be, like, representative of, of, like, science in a very legitimate way. Like, he's constantly doing research for the first time ever when he opens up this one aquarium. We go inside and we see these two little octopus-type creatures that are really cute. And there's this, like, really cute, happy music for... <laughs> first time in the fucking film and um he like puts all of these grubs and they're all wiggling and the octopuses are like popping them in each other's mouths and and they're like like they're lovers yeah they're lovers that's so sweet and And then then... (laughs) god damn it and then what happens (laughs) well yeah and then so so it's like the only reason he's fucking doing this is so that then he can like pull this lever and then this like horrifying spider type creature comes in and grabs the octopus that doesn't run away in time or the octopus creature that doesn't run away in time and tears it apart and eats it as the other one looks on in horror and says oh no um (laughs) but the other one saw it coming the other one saw the monster coming and didn't warn the little lover it very selfishly ran away (laughs) absolutely yeah that was my vibe i was like oh that's so cute and it's almost like it it knew that it had to sacrifice the other in order to to safely get away so that moment of the oh no was was such a was so empty Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah what do you mean oh no it's like you were part of that you constructed that scenario and so then it's just one very brief like happy moment in in the film (laughs) is uh is immediately torn apart and we see the alchemist makes notes about it he's like makes notes for everything and then he has all of these books of his writings that he just puts on these dusty bookshelves (laughs) no one reads (laughs) all of this suffering all of this like experimentation all of these people that he is just mm-hmm. to see what happens but like for fucking what <laughs> like just for dead knowledge to sit on shelves mm-hmm. knowledge for knowledge's sake not such a wonderful thing as we philosophers like to think i shouldn't say we philosophers i, I don't identify as a philosopher um, thank you for clarifying that i definitely identified you as a philosopher so wait no I'm, i've never identified as such i just i happen to study philosophy i I don't identify as a philosopher, though. Good. I love... I, that's really good. <laughs> um, but I digress. So. Because I mean, for that reason, it's because <laughs> philosophy is, I think, super evil when it is just knowledge for knowledge's sake, because then you have that figure that is the alchemist, who is, if we take the mythology of that figure super seriously, which we should, is literally a philosopher, <laughs> in search of the philosopher's stone trying to make life to make life and that's what the alchemist ends up doing is the alchemist ends up creating life by making yeah this gold dust so i don't know if you want to continue walking us through the the scene because i feel like you're, you're very good at that you're the <laughs> yeah <laughs> so then the creature enters the alchemist Actually, before we talk about that, there, there's a brief scene where there are these two, again, like very large monkey-like creatures 
that are like hitting each other with shovels, just like fighting. And then the alchemist comes over and electrocutes them and like to the point that they're like weird little penises like go erect. I did not notice that. I was so distracted by all the shit. Yeah. So much shit. Yeah, until until they're kind of like go into submission and like go back to shoveling shit, like literally shoveling shit. And, you know, they're exhausted. You can tell that it's just this horrific process. And then even more shit falls down as they've just shoveled a bunch of it. And it gets one of them to immediately, in anger, like, lash out at the other one. So I think it's just this, this like, really great image of kind of, like, workers fighting one another, you know, like, the working class. Because, like, shit continues to fall down. And it's deeply depressing and hopeless and futile and so the only thing you can lash out against is is the the person next to you there's no solidarity in this film beyond the faceless army of assassins no one is working together and even the assassins you would think that maybe they would have more success if they went in together it was either this nameless forces that seemed to be kind of working together like as a force so there are at least military scenes but there's no way to connect them to something greater than just the scene and the show of force in the moment so we don't know again what what the which army is against what beyond those little faces assassins every moment where there could be solitary solidarity every moment where there should be or could be solidarity there's just solitude yeah, like even the word assassin, like assassin is a very solitary word, right? Like I think at, at first, like I would think more like explorer or adventurer mm-hmm. or maybe even soldier, you know, like those all seem more likely to explain them. But then assassin is, is being the choice, I think is very purposeful and interesting. Yeah. And so the creature enters holding the precious child and comes down and you wonder what's going to happen. You've already seen the alchemist kind of do these horrifying things, but there's still like some glimmer of hope left. And the alchemist kind of does some things like all of his like beakers and all of these like different liquids going into each other. And the creature gently lays the precious child onto this table. And then it ends up just being this like compactor And so immediately, like, the child is crushed by these spikes and turned into this sludge that then is processed through more science and becomes this block of precious metal, which is then ground up and becomes this beautiful rainbow gold dust. And then the alchemist reverently gives the dust to the creature and... The alchemist opens this furnace. This just kind of goes to this raging fire, this raging fire of creation. And the creature blows the dust into this furnace. And then it basically creates in this hugely psychedelic sequence its own big bang where this whole new universe is created. And they both just stare reverently as this new universe is made and as it and as it grows and as it expands and um even as the other their universe you know like 
collects dust and as like time just kind of erratically goes back and forth (laughs) to the point that buildings are built and then there's cities and then inevitably there's the crumbling of society you know the fall of society and then you have another fallen universe so it's like a a flashbang experiment to create a new a new fallen world or a new fallen reality (laughs) and then the like the futility of any kind of resistance a resistance that is also pretty solitary so there even though there are two children that are seen spray painting they spray paint the anarchy sign so and of course like anarchists do like work collectively but there's still that lack of order or the lack of a cohesive movement against the totalizing force of power the totalizing religious mythic forces that are doing such harm to these little worlds well and regardless i think of what we're supposed to see like the children as um even if they're principled anarchist children it's also (laughs) the futility of they're already in this world that was created Mm. in moments without their knowledge that they've just come into that they like spray their anarchist symbols and then only to have everything fall and immediately (laughs) immediately sirens start blasting and then the buildings just crumble like it's this total atomic apocalypse i know i'm on a abolish the family kick recently and so i'm reading this into a lot of things but but i (laughs) i really do think that there is this really strong theme between this kind of like disembodied voice that we never actually see the source of of this like baby this gabbling baby that doesn't actually seem to be a baby. It's just kind of this like horrific mouth that everyone is like forced to listen to reverently. And then when it comes to the actual child, that's more like a fetus. There may be a little bit of a critique there (laughs) that immediately, like once it's born, even though it's precious, it's actually sacrificed on the altar of this new future, (laughs) right? That they're like, who is actually enjoying this future? Who is actually inheriting like the things to come everyone is constantly sacrificing on the altar of the child and on the altar of the family and then where does it take us it takes us to infinite new generations that must suffer and sacrifice on the altar of the child and the family progress that goes nowhere to the extent that it is just production and reproduction to create as you mentioned those dusty volumes of knowledge and the cyclical violence. So we're just creating new life in order for it to experience pain. The only other figure, so the last man, who again is this this older man with these long acrylics, who the first time we see him, he is like chooses between all of his different outfits and he chooses his, what you can tell is kind of the baseline religious outfit. And he's the one who is choosing from this infinite army of assassins to send them down one by one to their futile doom. And I just, I don't entirely know what to make of his character. In a sense, he's also complicit to the cycle of violence in an almost knowing way, because he interacts with the fates. The map that the first assassin that we were introduced to um, was... We learn from this interaction of that figure with the fates who are 
portrayed like they would be from Greek and Roman mythology, these like three. That was actually the second Assassin's Map. I I again realized that on the second watch where I was like, oh, wait. Yeah. (laughs) I'm trying to think of how to describe this without confusing myself or confusing the audience. But (laughs) that figure had to have knowingly be sending the Assassins to these terrible fates because he had a map of the future from the fates themselves. So the fates are seen sewing to like this from flesh-like material, this map that then is handed to each assassin as they go through their solitary journey to try to end the cycle, but they're only further perpetuating it. And it's almost like the that figure knowingly gives them the necessary tool to just continue the futile battle because that tool is that map or just the conditions that are necessary is the ideology of a continuous war well and the map also seems to predict that the assassin will go down into that spiral and then the baby will be taken out of him and will be taken into the labyrinth like that's what the like the path implies so so there is this this idea that it is this kind of like predetermined complicity with the fates to create this new fallen universe and this kind of like eternal exchange that all of these like different systems depend on each other that even though the assassin like may be going down to try to destroy them that that is actually just a symbolic necessity Mm -hmm. i totally agree now i'm trying i'm trying to think of more hopeful reading i still i don't mind futility i like the idea of doing something because it's meaningful even though you know that it won't work out i think that that's part of queer life well i think to tie it to Bataille's work again i you know we we talked about in episode two about how he decided like later in his life to like meditate on this picture of the tortured chinese soldier which has all of these like fucked up orientalist and like um objectifying implications and how he also seemed to like lean into like literature and like poetry that depicts Dassaud, for instance, that depicts like extreme horror as this like potentiality into that experience. And I do think that Mad God is that. Like it reflects the horror, our horror back at us in a limitless way that I think allows us to maybe think differently or at the very least experience something in a way that we'd be unable to experience that is, you know, the sacred. Beyond the few fleeting moments where like there is a potential for connection i wish that there was a little bit more sensuous joy experienced by the characters beyond just those two little creatures in that little aquarium that the alchemist feeds and then watches as the mates betray each other because very wistful about how i like to think about futility is like there ought there ought to at least be some some personal meaning it, it doesn't have to be a greater meaning can all, and be fully ridiculous it, sorry i'm i have to go to the bathroom i'll be right back <laughs> and we can scrap that but yeah, i just wish there was more 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 something that they got out of the futility that's like not the point of utility but <laughs> i'll be right back sorry about that <laughs> i had to like re-up my water okay so remember we were talking about the what is that figure's name the one with the campy nails the last man. The last man. What if the assassins are all women? 
I I got some dyke vibes from the assassin. I would love that for them. But I think they're also supposed to just be like um like a baseline for anyone to read themselves onto, right? Which is kind of this formless androgyny, which of course is like mm-hmm. defaults male because, oh, yeah. you know, fuck us, I guess. Well, that's why. Um, <laughs> because like, uh, like I definitely think also the, um, you know, the kind of wispy, like people made of ash that I think are, you know, like very much seem like workers who are kind of killed at random. I don't think they're they're gendered, even though they're just these kind of like stick figures. No, yeah, they're, they're just supposed to be souls, I think. I got soul vibes from them. Like all of the aimlessly wandering things. It's a balance too between trying to maintain one's integrity. So as a, as a being, so in a ethical, spiritual, embodied sense, and also for that to encapsulate in openness to others and a willingness to be undone and to undo others with ones being undone. But then also a moment where there there are boundaries that are violated. So what does it mean to be porous and to have a very porous understanding of the self that requires this interaction with others? in order to, again, maintain one's integrity. So you have to live in a world with others. But then where do you mark where the openness and the vulnerability and the meaningful or the valuable of transgressions occur? And then the transgressions that are just violence or just brutality. So how do you map that on? Or how do you begin to illustrate that using art or using language as I sort of bumbled through it? <laughs> I think that's the difficult thing is that there is no way to make that distinction in a concrete way because that's like the inherent nature of transgression is that transgression is always contextual. That's the difficult thing about art. That's the difficult thing about language. That's the difficult thing about social customs is that it's not like we can't just be these like lazy people who are trying to like map ourselves onto, you know, this is what we're biologically supposed to do. Like that's not what is happening. That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> it's a, a moving target. It's like we're looking for like silver bullets when we should be, again, trying to understand things as moving and as us interacting with them. That's why I like, I like the metaphor of moving target. Yeah, a lot of moving targets in, in Mad God. <laughs> oh, literally. <laughs> literally. And importantly, no, no silver bullets. Like there's no, you're not going to get the magical tool that you need in order to slay the mythic beast even with the map like that's what they're given so (laughs) a map in an ever-changing shifting world so the second assassin that we are introduced to who is actually (laughs) the first assassin is navigating a labyrinth there's all these symbols of mazes and there's these bowls and these minotaurs that are reoccurring so it's like the world that they're navigating is shifting with them in this spiral that they transcend or is the spiral of the heart of the labyrinth so nothing is still thinking about how bataille talks about how like the god of the mystics is one without aim and how his goal is the same as that of christian mystics but without transcendence at the end without salvation and i think it's another reason why mad god fits so well with bataille's thinking that it really is 
this experience of the sacred and the divine and the sublime without any salvation. Like you are not given a way out. You are not free of sin. You don't get to be not implicated. We are all implicated. But at the same time, no matter how much horror, even amongst the most grotesque, most overflowing representation of horror that we have, there's still this really intense beauty and like moments of longing and desire to reach out, even even if it fails. So do you think that this is a warning? So an apocalyptic vision that is supposed to act as a fable or do you think this is a founding myth so are we already in this world (laughs) are we already in the world of mad god or is this where we're going i think that it can be both i think that there are like fundamental truths reflected in it but i don't think phil Tippett would want us to not act i think that it is an indictment about how that possibility does exist And it is always like beneath the surface, even amongst that like kind of absolute hopelessness and like kind of infinite horror. I love how you always reject my false dilemmas, my simplistic binaries. But how do you think (laughs) that's not true? And again, I'm doing, I'm doing the, (laughs) I'm doing the, I'm doing the bad thing where I'm like silver bullet. So how can and should we act again? Not to like give us a prescriptive set of things to be doing, but like, what does action look like? I would hope that what Mangog could teach us is how we do worship on these idols, idols of the child, idols of the family, idols of capital, at the sacrifice of actual lives, actual children, just like everything that actually matters. You know, It's very intentionally not a prescriptive film. It's not telling us what to think, but I certainly think that it has a lot to say about the horrors that do very much exist and mm-hmm. are very present in our world. And why would we, if we could be otherwise, try to be less complicit in those things? So you said that you cried during two parts. Which parts were those? Yeah. Um, I started to get like teary like when the first assassin is descending down past the electrocuted men and then I like actually started crying like right after that in the scene with the animal torture and the doll and the door slamming on the monkey (laughs) that was like just deeply disturbing and shocking and then there was one yeah there was one other time I don't know if I remember when it was I didn't I didn't cry the second time I watched it I was still very enwrapped but no tears this time I also cry every single time I've ever watched Pokemon, the first movie. I've never seen that. Oh my god. I, a classic. A banger. <laughs> but I also never really got it. I never got into Pokemon. I didn't have access to, like, TV. Like, growing up, I didn't have access to media. I, I mean, I think we had very similar childhoods, actually. Like, 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 <laughs> I, like I think we've talked about this a little bit in the yeah. past, that I didn't, um, like, I didn't have TV either. I was only allowed to watch Saturday morning cartoons every other weekend when I was at my dad's house. Oh my god. <laughs> um but I did do Pokemon cards and I did watch Pokemon the first movie in theaters. Oh. So. I, oh. My dad sent me Pokemon cards because everyone had them and I wanted to fit in, but even though I didn't know what it was, but because he's Swiss and he lives in Switzerland, they were all in German. <laughs> Incredible. I love that. <laughs> no, but then I couldn't participate because they were all in German and none of the other kids new german okay well i have to say though i had i got some like japanese facts because okay. some stores had like the original japanese facts because you know they would come out before the english facts 
And I loved my Japanese cards. Like, I obviously had no idea what they said. My Pokemon cards were some of my original sacred <laughs> objects. <laughs> Deep reverence for them, especially certain ones. Yeah. I know that I cried recently during a movie, but I cannot remember what it was, which makes me... Oh, oh my god. No, I, I rewatched Kill Bill recently. <laughs> And I sobbed. <laughs> I was sobbing. <laughs> it's because I'm dealing with some mommy issues right now. Aww. <laughs> Which I feel like that's a really underrepresented group. I feel like daddy issues is privileged over mommy issues. Yeah, no, it's true. I do think the, you know, the father as a cultural figure is like more useless and, and tends to be like more harmful. But that is absolutely not the case across the board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talking about family abolition. My platonic life partner. She'd never seen me cry before, and so I was just sobbing during um, <laughs> during this film. And I like she was like not really into the film, and then like, just like watching me like utterly, utterly bewildered. <laughs> Tarantino really got to you. Like he just really <laughs> understands women. <laughs> I think that's what you're saying. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Drunk Church thinks that Tarantino is a feminist. Yeah, he, he speaks for all women. He speaks for all women. Every woman. Every woman cries out in his voice. He's the voice of, of womanhood. <laughs> his, his voice is the voice of all women crying out. <laughs> so true, Aurora, and you should say it. No. Thank you. <laughs> Finally, the representation we um, need. Uh, Quentin Tarantino. Um, <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, God. Um, but, you know, at its heart, Kill Bill is a film about a mother and a mother's love and what she will do to be reunited with her child. And some of us have never experienced that love. <laughs> yeah. Or some of us have been so deeply betrayed by our maternal figures that that film cuts really deep. <laughs> oh. I swear to God that I have decent taste. Just none of it has come out <laughs> in recorded conversations. <laughs> I enjoyed Kill Bill the most out of all of Tarantino's films. I, I enjoyed them a lot. Have you seen Death Proof? That one's decent. Oh, Death Proof is like the grindhouse one. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoyed that one. I thought it was fun, but it's also like kind of, I don't know. Oh, male gazy. I don't mean to be, he doesn't need to be um, stood up for. I don't mean to be standing up for him. I'm standing up for myself. Actually, one of the things that I like the most about Tarantino is that Tarantino is a huge fan of, like, Japanese and Korean cinema and, like, championed a lot of foreign films, like, really early mm -hmm. before they hit American audiences and, like, including a lot of movies that are really incredible. But uh, <laughs> the things that I like about any of his movies are so just, like, directly inspired slash absorbed from much better movies that I had watched after I was familiar with Tarantino and like, oh, these are so good. Yeah. Like, you know, the revenge movie did not have to be quote unquote revolutionized by Tarantino because it had already been created in an entirely different way and like far surpassed him. Mm -hmm. Like Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance trilogy and like Lady Vengeance and all those movies. Oh my God. I'm so upset Lady Vengeance isn't streaming on... 
Amazon. I, I've been trying to watch it for trying to rewatch it for a minute. It's not streaming. But yeah, Quentin Tarantino does the thing that Scorsese does, where he does the callbacks to old older cinema. And again, as you mentioned, the callbacks are always where the really exciting stuff happens. Mm-hmm. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like I love him as a lover of film. <laughs> I don't think I love him as a creator. <laughs> as a creator. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about the sudden shift in. Sorry, this is a broader conversation about linguistic trends or trends and how we understand art and artists. But s- suddenly people are saying creator instead of artist or director or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I think that's weird. Um, oh, it is super weird. I just do it naturally because so many people blend together in like different categories and it's like hard oh, yeah, to keep track really sometimes. Yeah, that wasn't a, wasn't a call out. <laughs> um, as a director, as an artistic mind, <laughs> I want him to give me r- movie recommendations. I don't want him to make movies. He helped release a lot of uh, Mike's work beyond just audition, which is cool. I love Mike. Yeah, a lot of Mike's work, and also and also the director of the host. Like he, he was the one that brought the host to the U.S. or like helped get the host popularized in the U.S. Mm. and you know which then became the first Korean language film to, to get, win Best Picture with uh, The Parasite. Oh, holy shit. Um, so thank you. Thank you, Quentin, for being, a, being an ally. <laughs> yeah, thank you for speaking up for every woman on Earth. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, this is going to be a fun little bonus episode that we can just like take about us like... <laughs> talking about Quentin Tarantino. It's for our soon-to-be-developed um, salty... Getting salty. Where we just talk shit. Getting salty. That's right. Yep. <laughs> the salt of the earth, as Laura says. Okay, well, so thank you so much, Aurora. And if you would like to support us in a continuing way... We are at www.patreon.com slash drunkchurch to get access to bonus episodes, but you're already here, so you already support us, and we love you. And we love mm-hmm. if you want to give us feedback, leave a comment, uh, you know, share the show with your friends, you know, just just like whatever works for you. Um, we love you. Thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you for listening. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bless you for being an angel. Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me. <laughs>